Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Well, the sculptures of Ramesh Mario Nityendran are bright and colourful, sometimes provocative, but always recognisable. It's seen him collected by some of Australia's top institutions and selected as GQ's Artist of the Year, showing just how far his star has risen in the public eye as well as in the art world. He joins me ahead of his latest exhibition called Under God. Ramesh, welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You studied painting at university. So when did sculpture take over? You know, I love this question because lots of people are interested in this idea of university training and pedagogy and art education. And, you know, I studied contemporary art at a time where we were really thinking about mediums at university. You know, we were majoring in painting, drawing, ceramics, sculpture. And I always loved painting as a child. You know, I was always painting, I was always drawing, I was always working with two-dimensional media. And I you know, I didn't, we didn't grow up very wealthy. We didn't have, I didn't have much means, you know. It's not like I had some, you know, photography studio as a child. I didn't have a creative family. So I was always, you know, making do with what I had. And when I studied painting, what was really exciting for me was the fact that painting as a language was, you know, culturally plural, you know, across different societies, different times, different regions, people were using different types of pigment to depict certain scenes of everyday life or mythological kind of narratives with painting languages. But when I kind of finished my degree, all the kinds of historical references I became interested in were sculptural. I started to become majorly interested in vernacular sculpture, particularly from Asia. So the kinds of religious iconography and sculptural works that were adorning temples, civic places. You know, I was interested in stone. I was interested in bronze. So I kind of had this desire to move beyond this two-dimensional plane and work with three dimensions. So does that mean that you still to this day start on the two-dimensional page, if you like, when you begin a work? See, my starting process is... uh... It's it's kind of it's, I'm sounding a bit ridiculous now, but it's kind of non-linear in a way. So sometimes I'll scribble in a diary. Um, sometimes I'll just start making something, you know, with clay. And what I think is really interesting about creative practice, and I guess how I work as well. I just said my work is really interesting. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> no, um, no. But um, it's the fact that I think when you're making an artwork. It's not about, you know, starting with a design. It's just about starting, I guess. And I've always scribbled. Like, I think six six of my diaries are in, um, you know, the collection of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. The Powerhouse Museum have a few of my diaries as well. And with my recent book, we tried to map where my early drawings were actually reflecting the sculptures. So a short answer to that, which would be that I always start by scribbling and then they kind of, emerge in multiple dimensions, I guess. Yeah, I like that idea that your hands know what to do when perhaps your your mind doesn't. You've got to follow your hands, and certainly in parts of your work that's the case. Reading uh, features about your work, there seems to be particularly uh, featured a lot of these ideas underpinning your art, patriarchy, religion, masculinity, 
Are these all part of one theme to you or are they separate? Oh, that is, that's one of the best questions I've ever been asked, Andy. Like, um, it's interesting because when I start working with, um, I guess, symbolism, if we break it down into very basic terms, I was always primarily interested in figurative representation. And, you know, as a child, you know, looking around, seeing advertising, looking at movies, I loved animation. What struck me the most and what still strikes me the most are gendered representations. You know, I'm really interested in the way in which imagery of idealised males or idealised females or idealised, you know, multi-gendered icons become circulated in societies. And when I start thinking about something like patriarchy or masculinity or religion, it's very hard to actually look at one of those concepts without understanding how they intersect with other broader social and political ideologies. And what's really interesting, I think, about just this framework of research is when you start narrowing your area of interest, you actually realise that it's it's massive. And from a practical perspective, you know, I really started looking, especially when I started, when I finished university, I started looking at um, kind of very sexual imagery from a perspective of a kind of young queer artist, you know, exploring, you know, a burgeoning identity. And I think, you know, 10 years later, um, the work is a lot different. Um, But, you know, I think the principles are still there. Despite some of these sort of heavy inspirations, if you like, there is a real sense of fun in the work itself. Is that just the aesthetic or is it important to you to find some levity and some lightness in the ideas that you're playing with? I think it's a bit of both. Like, you know, when I was, I, I think, I think the aesthetic that I kind of promote in my artwork through, I see it as political in some ways. In that, I think we're in a society where there are lots of clean lines, where there is lots of rigidity. And when I look at artwork and the function of artwork, I don't want to. I want to make something that only can be made with human hands, if that makes sense. Um, and I think highlighting that trace of humanness is quite important for me. And I think from a values perspective, I believe that to be quite a democratic approach, you know, so people can actually arrive at the experience of an artwork and see that it was made by another person. And when we start looking at the, you know, nature of, you know, monuments in Australia, for example, a lot of those things aren't designed to reflect the human hand. And I'm talking specifically about colonial monuments. Um, They're meant to kind of overpower an audience. They're on these giant pedestals. Um, The proportions are kind of larger than life and they're very idealised. But the other thing is, I think one of my lecturers at university gave me really amazing advice. They said, to make, you know, amazing art, you also need to do justice to what comes naturally to you. And this vernacular, this kind of mark making, this aesthetic is what I like doing. Um, and it's the kind of aesthetics that I'm interested in, broader, in a cultural sense. So if you enjoy and relish this traceability back to the human hand that created an artwork, 
I, I gather then, uh, and, and to extrapolate on that, you must be horrified at the advent of AI-created art because <laughs> this is what we talk about constantly these days. It seems to be uh, permeating every part of our lives. But, yeah, I'd love your thoughts on AI in art. Yeah, well, it's kind of... It's really interesting. I think people have lots of, I think people look at my work and look at my person and have a lot of assumptions about what I will and won't like. And I think that's all part of having a brand image as well. But um, I'm actually all for any type of experimentation with materials. And I think what's really interesting is you can actually use digital technology expressively. You know, I think there's this um, almost this interpretation that, you know, if we're mediating our hand with something that's almost immaterial, like a lens or AI or, you know, artificial intelligence. Like the thing is the AI still needs to be coded. And I think we can do those things in expressive and interesting ways. And I actually think it's really important for artists working now to use the language and materials of what's happening in society to make their artworks. So, you know, I think if, you know, the military is using AI, if animation studios are using AI, if gaming, you know, is using AI, I think artists should use AI so we can actually start thinking about bringing narratives to society that are maybe more speculative. Yeah, it is a mistake, I suppose, to think that AI is replacing the maker when, in fact, it can be replacing the paintbrush, if if you like. You told Daniel Browning on RN's art show a couple of years back that you're surprised that artists aren't more adventurous with the kinds of history they're sourcing as context or as reference. What are the sort of histories that interest you? Um, some context. Some context to that statement is a lot of contemporary art is referential to art history. And when I look at art that is referential to art history, a lot of the time, especially within a um, inverted commas Western framework, there's a lot of sampling of modernism, for example. So artists like Picasso, artists like, um, you know, male modernists, and these kinds of trends come out through various things, you know, um, ideological, intellectual and cultural movements. But what I kind of realised is that the history of art is, it's actually the history of humanity. And in lots of ways, it's incomprehensible. And I was always surprised that, you know, artists tended to just keep sampling the same histories, um, the same European histories, for example. And when I started making my work, I started, I really wanted to understand what the core values of my practice was. And that's something I think about. Um, You know, every few weeks I try and ground myself by asking myself that question. And, you know, on a very basic term, something that I really believe in is, you know, meaningful multiculturalism. And how can that kind of cultural plurality be reflected in contemporary art discourse is a question that I often think about. And I think from a practical perspective within my work, I start looking at regional narratives or regional histories that are that I believe to be more relevant to Australia. And for me, that's looking at the Asia-Pacific um, or Asia and the Pacific for references and also looking to my own cultural background. So looking at um, references that have emerged from South Asia, for example. And 
one, in my current show, there's a work that's inspired by a Gandharan Buddha. And what I find really interesting about Gandharan Buddhas is that they're syncretic images. So they're syncretic in that they represent the merging of different schools of thought. And Gandharan Buddhas, Gandhara was an ancient region of northwest Pakistan, and that school of um, Buddhist imagery was impacted by the contact with Alexander. So those Buddhas actually have Greco-Roman sensibilities. So I'm really interested in the fact that regionally specific narratives, when you look closely, are actually multi-regional. Um, and I know I've ranted a bit. Um, yeah, but- well, I suppose that what you've, you've referred to is what others might call, you know, cultural appropriation. Uh, what's your view about that? Um, I think cultural appropriation, I think, you know, language is really interesting. It's always changing, it's fluid. And I think cultural appropriation, especially in the last few years, has a lot of attention. Um, people are really thinking meaningfully about the kinds of symbols that and the the power dynamics that are associated with the use of certain symbols. And, you know, for me, when I think of the term cultural appropriation, I think that term in a present context is really about um, a kind of imbalanced power dynamic where someone or where a certain type of symbolism associated with a certain culture is being used a certain way. Um, So within my work, I'm very careful about cultural appropriation, for example. So I'm more looking at archetypical imagery. So I might look at the way in which guardian figures or warrior figures or, you know, door gate entry figures or fertility figures as an archetype have featured throughout different regions um, and work with that kind of language. But the other kind of cultural or... um, thing that's happening is that, you know, within museums around the world, we are thinking about repatriation. So, you know, there's this amazing scene in, you know, Black Panther, where um, one of the protagonists goes into the museum and kind of reclaims a sculpture that's linked to his African heritage. And I always find when these discussions that are happening in museums or what some people may perceive to be highly intellectual cir- circles start seeping into popular culture, um, what that means. And I think what it means is that we are suddenly starting to look at, you know, um, especially religious sculptures that have been misplaced or that have started in one region and ended up in another museum somewhere else. And we're thinking about the provenance of them. And a lot of those sculptures are being returned, for example. Um, And I think we're in really interesting times where we're starting to have a lens that is about understanding power. If you just join me on RN Drive, I'm Andy Park. Ramesh Mario Nithyendran is my guest. We're talking about uh, sculpture and his new exhibition, Under God. And Ramesh, you created several major installations over the last few years, including one for the entrance to uh, Hotter at, uh, on the Gold Coast. It's been kind of called a New Age Idol. Take me into creating an installation like that. Are you working through drafts and different versions or do you go straight to the final work? So when you're working within a public art framework, you're actually... In a way, you kind of have to work backwards. You almost start with what you want to make and then you have to work with engineers, fabricators, 
and, you know, get it sunned off. It needs to be safe, for example. Um, so in a way, there is, if I was making a ceramic, for example, within my studio that was 80 centimetres tall, there is a different process. But working in the public realm is always more collaborative. And I think what energises my studio is having different kinds of work patterns. You know, I think I don't really want to just work in one way all the time. I'm quite enriched by variation and routine that keeps changing. Um, And I think that allows me to be responsive to lots of different things. Um, But I think what's really interesting for me as an artist is thinking about the function of figurative sculpture. So with that sculpture in particular, I was really thinking about this idea of guardianship, you know, so what does it mean for sculptures to be placed at the entrance or around areas of civic importance? And, you know, when I was kind of, I remember going on school excursion in high school, walking through Hyde Park and seeing all these, you know, monuments of these, you know, big colonial sculptures uh, on these kinds of massive pedestals uh, presented really high. And I always remember thinking that those things were quite obscene and obscene in the true sense of the word. So exaggerated, heightened sense of display. And when I started to, you know, go back to Sri Lanka, when I started to travel, especially around Asia, what I noticed was figurative sculpture was actually all around areas of civic importance. And a lot of the time around entrances and exits. And it was really about welcoming people to the space, kind of having a threshold work that actually indicated this is a place of importance, this is a place that needs to be, um, you know, protected. And I think for me, I really wanted to bring narratives that were multi-regional. I wanted to bring elements of the human hand. I wanted to bring different kinds of materials and bring them together almost as an antidote to the kinds of colonial sculpture that we might see in public spaces, especially in metropolitan areas. And I also wanted to think about what could an Australian multicultural monument that was figurative actually look like in 2020? Near the end of this year, you'll have your first huge international solo show in Scotland, more than 200 works. That's a huge collection, but it feels like it barely scratches the surface of your work. This is a slightly loaded question, but how do you keep that inspiration flowing? I think artists are generally very sensitive to the world. You know, I think there's a lot of cliches and imagery around what artists' practices look like. You know, there's no alcohol in my studio. You know, the studio is very labour intensive. And I think contrary to how people might perceive me, I'm actually quite introverted in lots of ways. And I spend a lot of time in my mind um, speculating. And what I think the most, like why I love art so much is that with art, you can take a material, you can take clay, you can take paper, you know, you can take something fibrous, you can take plastic, you can take anything. You know, contemporary art doesn't tell you what medium to use. And there are literally infinite possibilities. And as the world changes, what that material means changes. So you're actually never working with things that are static. So I actually find it very difficult not to be inspired, if that makes sense. Like, 
often when I think about dying and mortality, my main fear is that I won't be able to make everything that's in my mind. Yeah, that's a fascinating thought, isn't it? And a reason to uh, get out of bed every day. <laughs> it's been fantastic to hear a bit about some of your uh, process. Uh, Ramesh Mario Nithyendran, his latest exhibition is called Under God. It's on at Sullivan and Strumpf in Melbourne from March 16. You can see his work in galleries all across Australia. Been great to talk to you, Ramesh. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.